When the Son of Man comes to his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in, hev in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates, separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The Lord, you may be seated. Thank you for that reading, Jeremy. The kids are invited to kids' church with Emily today. Come to the kingdom I've prepared for you. You heard in that reading. Jeremy, a, a rude awakening to reading scripture at Defiance Church. Sometimes I don't update the slide. Um, so if you're following along in your Bible, that was the reference from last week, not this week. Um, we've been walking through these parables in our Lenten season, these parables that sort of lead the way to the cross there it is. Um, and this is sort of this last big parable and the last sort of public teaching that Jesus does in the Gospel of Matthew. The next um, lines in the Gospel of Matthew that begin chapter 26 are that when Jesus said, finishing saying all these things, he said to the things, as you know, the Passover two, two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified that at this moment his teaching ministry has kind of ended and he's going to go into Jerusalem and, um, or go in for the Passover and we'll begin sort of this Holy Week journey. And so next week we'll have Palm Sunday. And I, I try to, to remind people that on Palm Sunday we also, also do Passion Sunday. Obviously, normally you would have a Good Friday service and our goal someday is to have a full Good Friday service. But at the moment, 
Good Friday services aren't full, and so what the church has done in its wisdom, not just our church, is added the reading of the Passion to the Sunday beforehand so that Christians who gather again on Easter will have heard the story of the cross, will have heard the fullness of what happens there, so that if you miss Good Friday or if there is no Good Friday service, you don't go from um, uh, Hosanna in the highest, we're all doing great, to he's risen without knowing what happened in between. And so there's a narrative function where we'll have sort of a longer reading next Sunday as we sort of sit in that. But one of the, the questions there, or quotes that has overrided this sort of um, series is this quote from Grand Green: You cannot conceive, nor can I, the appalling strangeness of the mercy of God. And what I've argued is that our familiarity with these parables makes us miss the appalling strangeness that is the mercy of God. Now, this one is nice, we think, but we haven't sat with it long enough sometimes. Because what happens here is the king of all the world gathers all the nations to himself and tells them that whatever you did for the people you looked by is what you did for me. And that's how I know you belong to me or not. The appalling strangeness of the mercy of God. I climbed to the top. I got to the best towers. I did all the best I could in life. And yet, if you looked beyond these things, you missed the point. And going backwards sort of through our parables, uh, so the last will be first and the first will be last, we sort of... um, did the parable of, of the, uh, sorry, the parable of um, the laborers in the vineyard, those who come last are paid the same as those who came first. The appalling strangeness of the mercy of God proclaimed in that the last will be first and the first will be last. The next one we did was the parable of the wedding banquet. For many invited, but few are chosen. This is a king who throws a banquet for his son, and people refuse to come. And so he goes out, has time to raise the whole city, destroy it, and gathers people from everywhere across the streets. And yet one person shows up in improper attire, and he's cast out. We looked at what all that means, but for many are invited, but few are chosen. The appalling strangeness of the mercy of God. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the hour of the day. This is the parable of the virgins. Shouldn't they have shared their oil? But we missed it's about this preparedness for this king who is coming, that it would be better to be greeted with some light than no light at all. And so in this culminating, the end of this teaching, uh, Frederick Dale Bruner calls it the sermon at the end of the world, is this passage from Matthew 25 that Jeremy read for us. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but, but the righteous to eternal life. And the basis on which this is determined, um, I think, should still catch us off guard in the world today. Now, I should say that, that this sermon, um, I have far too much to say. And so in order to keep it streamlined, what I want to do is um, uh, look at how it is in culture today. So that's what we'll go to next. The next thing we'll sort of go to is the history of interpretation. And I think here we'll find more of the questions and the strangeness of this passage. And then in the end, 
the question that I want to go to is, uh, I want to walk through it for ourselves, and then I'm going to tell two stories. Now I'm realizing this is all a mistake. <laughs> I'm going to tell two stories shortly, and then close with a thought. So um, where it is today, um, history of interpretation, walk through it not slowly. I'm going to have to do that faster now as I speak this out loud. Two stories and um, interpretation for us possibly today. Um, so keep me on track, and, and that's where we're going, and that's my effort to keep this streamlined. Uh, I don't always tell you where I'm going. Sometimes I don't know. Today I have a plan, and my plan is to stick to it. Um, so to, to start with, I want to talk about where this, this uh, parable is today. And one of the things I think it's most known for today is in its weaponization um, and how we use it against other people and other Christians, is that we sort of use this parable to assure ourselves of our own salvation because we've done enough for the poor, but those people haven't. And oftentimes you'll see this, this parable I think has bled it so well into our post-Christian world that non-Christians will say to you, aren't you supposed to just feed the hungry? Aren't you supposed to just uh, clothe the naked? Aren't you guys just supposed to be those people? And so it's not only Christians who will attempt to silence other people based on Matthew 25, but it's actually the world that has absorbed this parable well enough that will say, um, you should live with it in this way. Now, incidentally, this is divorcing largely, when used by Christians or non-Christians in this way, divorcing the parable from the one whom speaks it. This is one of the points I tried to make at the beginning. We have to keep in mind where these things fall in their narrative context, as the one who speaks it is Jesus Christ, our Lord, the one who is the king in the parable. For instance, somebody who doesn't believe in this king trying to correct you on this parable. It might be a helpful observation. I'm not saying that everybody's always wrong when they do this, but to say, I don't even like that king, but you're supposed to act this way. And my, my friend Luke, and he absorbed this from other people, he has this way of saying that, that often in the modern world today, what we always seem to want is the kingdom, the feeding, the carrying, the clothing, without the king. That we have this way of sort of trying to take this kingdom that's here and trying to... Um, Make it part of the strategy in the world. And I think we'll get at the end of the sermon, I'm sticking on track, the errors with how we think of that, because it's often through institutions. It's not actually through making this manifest in our lives. We try to sort of bring about this about, um, and uh, I didn't want to bring this up, but there was a, a, a super PAC, one of those committees that helps people get elected, that was uh, used the face of a presidential candidate, I won't tell you which one, um, and put Matthew 25 over it as the name of their super PAC to sort of get this person elected. Idolatry goes strong in America on this one, and I was thinking that if you're going to use Matthew 25 as your slogan, other than a picture of Jesus or a picture of a poor person, you're, the, as the kids say, you're doing it wrong. Um, this is not the way that this is supposed to go. And so what we do then is sort of project this out into the world in grand ways in which it doesn't sort of deal with the concrete of where we are. And so this, um, one of the enemies of Defiance Church, we have them and we try to love them as best as we can, is um, 
moralistic therapeutic deism, and I've talked about it several times if you're new here. Um, it's this idea of what most young people believe is moralistic therapeutic deism, that God calls me to be good in some ways, that God sort of cares about my feelings when I invite God to care about my feelings, and that God is sort of vague as is. And what the research on this from um, North Carolina, Notre Dame, and um, Princeton suggested was is that these are what Christi- young Christians believe just as much as their secular pairs, peers. And what they found more clearly was that most young people are still getting their faith from their parents. And so the challenge is the whole church believes in this sort of Christian moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, what I would say is it, this is a hard uh, enemy to have because there's truth embedded within it. God, in some sense, does care about action in the world. This parable speaks to that. God, in some sense, does tend our souls as a shepherd. It's a therapeutic element to us. Deist is, is probably the hardest because God is not vague in the Christian or Jewish imagination, but this radically sort of concrete thing. But we have these ways, but when you combine these together, you can see the lies that begin to come from it. The reason why I bring it up in connection to this parable is that this knowing of it in the world today definitely stems into moralistic therapeutic deism. There is no hell at the end of the popular telling of this story. There is no eternal life, actually, in the popular telling of this story. And essentially, it's not even about the concrete acts of giving someone food or clothing the naked or visiting someone in prison, but about a whole aura or atmosphere that says, just be a little bit nicer. And that's where I think we go astray. Because this passage doesn't speak of just being a little bit nicer. It speaks of radically concrete acts that you can do in your life. Now, John Christendom, who we'll get to at the end of the sermon too in some sense, he, he had a, this way of teaching it to his congregation that it's so easy. Just have some food and give it away. Have some water and share it. When you see somebody naked or not clothed, give it to them. And this is this early church interpretation that sort of seems to suggest is like, come on, guys, like, hungry people, give them food. Um, and, and yet in the modern world, we sort of make this more complicated too, that we sort of can't view it that way. And, and part of it is, I think, going back to that super PAC um, or our, our, our sociopolitical imagination around this parable is this idea that we should be able to get everybody all the things that they need for life and not have to know any of them that annoy me. Um, not have to be involved with them. Um, I keep this thing from on track. Where's the next? I, I will say this is that uh, at my last church when I preached in this parable, it was a, a great giving church, supported many missions organizations, this, that, and the other. And I said, Jesus doesn't say, and you paid somebody to go to Africa and feed me. Welcome to the kingdom I have prepared for you. Or Jesus doesn't say, you bought clothes and you dropped them off at the Salvation Army and welcome to the kingdom. That there's this intentional relationship in that if we talk about a personal relationship with Jesus, here it is. In knowing the least of these, you've done it for me. And in that sense, actually doing it might be the point. 
Now, I won't say if it was an older church than this one, but an 89-year-old started showing up at our laundry ministry, and I was like, I didn't mean you. Um, You've been a faithful hospital administrator your whole life. You've cared for the poor. You've done everything you could. And he was like, no, Matt, you said that if I didn't do it myself, if I was just giving away the money that I made all these years, it didn't count. I was like, this is a, you never know who's going to hear what you say and who's going to ignore it. Um, uh, and I, I finally got him to accept that, that you should show up to these places, but don't hurt yourself. Um, and he was finally able to settle into that. Um, but this is the way that this sort of parable has been told in the modern world. This quote always comes to me when I get to this parable, and I'm going to attempt to explain it very briefly. If other ages felt loud, they saw more, even though they saw with blind, prophetical, unsentimental eye of acceptance, which is to say a faith. So what Flannery O'Connor is starting with here is that if other ages uh, felt less, and we live in an era where we primarily feel all our compassion— And this is why I think we magnify it up. There are unhuddled masses out there that need food. I feel for them. It's a lot harder when you know to them to feel for them. And and as in my life, I've spent more and more in Seattle, when we talked about being with the least of these a while ago, uh, a couple years ago, I had served at this um, house in Seattle where anybody could come and make food, cook food, serve food. We had food there. We had storage for their... um, clothes and stuff, their bikes. It was open. I was there from 8 to noon after I finished seminary, and I would sort of do the dishes and help out. Um, and they were, everybody who came was in needy, um, I would say suffered from addiction or psychological issues, this, that, and the other. And I can tell you, spending time with them might have cured me from my feeling compassion for them. Could you just do one of your 12 dishes you used to make this? Hey, Matt, I know I'm a little late. It's 1130. I leave at noon. I'm going to roast a whole turkey, and it's frozen. This is um, the idea that, like, we feeling is really the best way to drive these things. And so we'll continue with O'Connor. In the absence of this faith, now we are governed by tenderness. This is compassion or that feeling. It is a tenderness with long cut off from the person of Christ is wrapped in theory. So Connor here is talking about the way in which our tenderness is wrapped in this sort of like, I theoretically care about these things. Or, and Dorothy Day, if you're familiar with her, is this sort of Catholic modern version of a saint. You know, she said, don't call me a saint because you'll only be able to dismiss us if you do that. Um, she never wanted to be called anything more than, I, don't know, I would call her a crankety old lady, but I don't know what exactly she wanted to be called. But anyways, Dorothy Day and Peter Marin started the Catholic Worker Movement, which just um, was similar to what I was doing in this house and cared for all the poor. And while they had um, Marxist leanings, they understood that like you actually needed to get into these communities and do these things. I mean, and Day was radical, so was her partner Peter Marin. It would be like, quit your job and try doing manual labor amongst these people actually relate to them, garden with them, use the tangible in your world. And even they, as they have theory to sort of solve poverty, knew that there was no solving this in the non-enemy way if you didn't get to know the people. So Connor, this quote escalates quickly, when tenderness is detached from the source of tenderness, when our care for the least of these is detached from the care of the least for these, its logical outcome is terror. It ends in forced labor in the fumes of the gas chamber. 
Like I said, that escalates quickly there. When tenderness is detached from the source of tenderness, we begin to think about these things as math problems. I actually read an Economist article a couple years ago that said Bill Gates might be the person best equipped to deal with global poverty because he doesn't see people. He sees a mathematical error. So he'll be able to see through that and do better work than most organizations can do. Of course, many people can see the error in that line of thought. Once you stop seeing people, your solutions aren't driven by connected to people and their wholeness. Now, this isn't Bill Gates, but in the early 1900s, there was an idea that what if we eradicated poverty by eradicating poor people? I have compassion to eliminate poverty. And so what I've done is tried to design a society that eliminates those who are impoverished. You see this in, in Belgium today, I think it's Belgium, uh, or it was one of the Scandinavian countries that claims to have uh, eliminated Down syndrome, have cured Down syndrome. And, and the way that they've cured Down syndrome is by sort of enforcing radically in utero testing and then persuading parents not to go through with the birth. Compassion, tenderness detached from the source of tenderness. Down syndrome looks like a terrible thing in the world. What if we found a way to make sure nobody lived with it? You can see how this happens. And this is where this parable unhinged from the person who speaks it and the life that it's talking about can become extremely dangerous. It leads to forced labor and the fumes of gas chambers. And I, and I just want to say in our modern world here, how to respond compassionately to some of the things going on is a t it, while... Um, Aiming for care is a difficult question. And the, I, I, I don't often talk about contemporary issues, but one that stands out to me the most on this one is, is sort of transgenderism, is how do you respond with compassion and care while also um, holding out hope for them? And this is just bizarrely is that, that um, as this sort of thing exists in the world, as people... Um, suffer from this or deal with this, it doesn't seem that there's any clear answer to what is the best help. Like the, the suicide rate, depending on where they are on the spectrum of from just announcing to fully transitioned, doesn't change all that much. So what does compassion look like in a complex world like that? Just accepting them all the time and doing whatever they want doesn't seem to have any better results. And so what is the Christian response in those moments of humanizing and care and of being with? I'll go into the answer to that now. No, I won't. <laughs> Just to say that these are complex questions. Historical interpretation, I'll try to go fast here because this might be the least interesting, but I think it's important to know, is that the, one of the interpretations, there are three sort of grand interpretations of this parable. And we often just view it in the universalist interpretation, which is when it says all the nations are gathered before God, it means all of humanity. Now, it's interesting because ethne, the term for nations here, actually almost always means everybody who's not a Jew, which raises interesting questions for this parable if you're going to think through that. But it's everybody, all of humanity, gathered before the king, and that they will be judged on what they've done for the poor. Uh, so the least of these are anybody who is poor. 
anybody who's clo- uh, naked, anybody who's hungry, anybody who's thirsty. This would be the most common interpretation of this parable, and incidentally, not one that really takes off until the 1800s or 1900s. This, is, this universalist one is sort of new, if we want to look at it that way, um, to see this in this way. Um, and so with this one, the question is, who are the least of these is everyone. Who is the nations are every, everyone who's poor, who are the nations is everyone. And so it sort of becomes, I'm going to give you three options. This one I don't think is bad. I think it often can become the most moralistic, therapeutic, deistic. And, it, and detached from who Christ is and detached from the story that makes up the rest of the Gospels, it becomes we save ourselves through this interpretation. And what worries me about this interpretation most is that while most people, I think, in the Christian world would say this is the one they're most familiar with, this is the one they know, um, I haven't seen it make like a radical change. And so what I often think is like, it's not working for us even if that's the way we interpret it. Um, For me, when I came to this parable, when I became a, a literate reader of the Bible, which was after college, and that was hard for me to admit because most of you were literate read of the Bibles like when you could read. Um, but for me, it took a little bit longer. Um, and I came to this parable. That was sort of the place I went to it is how am I going to go to these places? And so I purposely tried to place myself in areas from, from the soup kitchen I talked about to lots of other areas where I would serve in these roles and ways and try to find the gospel here. And in many ways I did, But the notion, if this is your interpretation, is when is enough? When are you a sheep instead of a goat? And it should be noted that when Jesus calls all these people before him, they're already sheep and goats, and they're already prepared for the place that he has prepared for them. Um, And it's an obvious difference. It's not like a white sheep and a black sheep. And the white ones go over here, and the spotted ones, well, I'll I'll weigh you and figure it out, and the white ones, you're in. It's like two different animals, which is worth remembering when we try to apply this individually to ourselves, is that it's becoming the type of person who's connected to Jesus in this way, not changing. um, In some sense, as Christians, we have to see ourselves as sheep already. Um, I, I don't know how Christians could become goats to some degree. Which brings us to the next classic interpretation, which actually sort of held that out. The nations are just Christians, just the church, and it is just Christians who are judged on how they treated the least of these. And in this one, there are two notions of least of these. Most uh, most not prominently, uh, most forgotten, most not used is that the poor are anyone. Funny enough, in this one where it's just Christians judged by this, and this is one of the oldest interpretations, is um, it's only based on how they treated impoverished Christians. Um, Now, part of this might have to do with a Christendom world in which anybody who's impoverished is in some sense a Christian. But normally it wasn't how you treated all poor people. It was impoverished Christians. And here it had a localized sense for it. And so this one was... uh, you're a better preacher than I am, you would be extorting the congregation to be like, don't be sheeps, or don't be goats. <laughs> uh, pastors, sheep are not very bright and apparently horrible animals to herd, and so pastors have this joke about like, you know, God gave us sheep, and then somebody always points out, yeah, but sheep bite. Um, and anyways, inside pastor conversations, very nerdy. Um, 
This one, the classic interpretation, has this way of seeing only Christians. Now, the hard part is nations, ethne, is, is, seems to imply, um, well, look at the other places it's used in Matthew. It's the place in which Christians are sent to. Christians are sent on, on um, uh, a mission towards all the nations. In some sense, they're grafted into Judaism, which there was ethne, everybody else, and Jew and Christian, us. And so that one raises interesting questions. This is moving to the next interpretation. Least of these being Christian. Now, this is an interesting one because little ones, least, um, whatever you've done for the least, whatever you've done for the little, um, and these brothers of mine, these common things used in Matthew 25, almost always describe Christians. Which brings us to the exclusive interpretation, which instantly gets rated at the bottom because nobody likes the word exclusive today. Um, the exclusive interpretation says that the nations are, this, is, this parable, which it is classically called, is the judgment of the nations. And it is the nations that are gathered before Christ. And it is the nations who will be um, in some sense, grafted into this new kingdom based on the way that they treated Christians or Christian apostles or Christian missionaries. And so this one suggests that Christians aren't really in this parable. But it will be a parable that sort of judges the way the rest of the world is. And it's a comfort here at the end of the gospel to say that there's, there's in some sense, as you're sent out following this crucified one, there'll become a day where everybody else will be judged and known by how they treated you. Now, most of us, we Christians today, this is where this one runs in the problems, exist at the top of society, particularly in North America. So when we say, you know, how we treated you, we being... The nation, often think, uh, thought of as Christian, which I would like to amend to some extent, but, but that sort of becomes a hard one. Now, I think the hardest truth about this one is um, this is the one that I think I like this interpretation, but what terrifies me the most is then the question becomes, why aren't Christians those who are hungry, thirsty, the stranger, needing clothes, sick, or in prison? See, if you want to run with this one, then the question becomes, as Christians, our, our relationship to the people around us should be one that gets us ending up in hunger, that one that gets us ending up in thirst, that one that gets us um, a stranger in the land, that one might be, I hope, more applicable to missionaries, in need, sick, and looked after, that we exist in a position of need in the world, not fully cared for. Now, if you know anything about doing somebody a favor nowadays, they instantly will try to reject it. And we hate being in need to anyone. And so what does it mean that if you take this exclusive invitation that Christians are supposed to be the ones who exist in need in the world? It's a difficult and hard interpretation. Where did I say I was going after this? Two stories? Uh, or walking through the text. I'll try to do the walk through the text as quickly as I can. This one's actually not a parable, but it seems like a picture of the end. The thing that 
makes me mistakenly think it was a parable when I picked it for this, but also many other people, is that it uses a metaphor that the people are like sheep and goats, but it's not actually a parable because all the other parables aren't as clean of a picture. But here, the king, who is Jesus, um, is gathering all people in front of himself. And where we look at where this story is going, this is the crucified one on the other side is now the king. The appalling strangeness of the mercy of God, the one who's going to be rejected. And as we look at some of these things, these are directly what Jesus is going to experience after this scene. He is going to end up hungry and in prison and um, naked and, um, and all these things as he goes to the cross, which is another maybe point for that exclusive interpretation that we should follow Jesus and be like the way that he is. And so when he finishes, uh, so he says that all these people would be gathered in front of him. We talked about the nature of sheep and goats sort of being like, it is what you are. Uh, And the thing, king will say, come to me, you who are blessed. Take your inheritance in the kingdom I have prepared for you since the creation of the world. This is um, worth pausing on, is that what they're, invited to is the kingdom that has been prepared for them since the creation of the world. In some sense, this, this sort of gambit has already been decided. I don't want to go towards sort of a high sort of uh, Calvinist reading on this portion, but just to say that what God has prepared here and who he's invited in seems to have been decided in its midst already. And he calls them in, but I was hangry, hungry, <laughs> Hangry is hungry and angry, which people will say nowadays, I'm so hangry. Um, it's a f- typo on my part. Um, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. I talked about um, the tangibility and, and Christendom's way, the easiness of these things. I think our modern world sort of makes us immune from seeing them. Um, but I think part of it is in living in relationship and so that we do see them. Um, the, the prison one, some people will ask, what does it mean to visit people in prison? You didn't get meals in prison back then, so that was part of the problem. Um, instead of walking through it, I looked at the time. We'll get to the point I wanted to get to walking through it. When did we see you hungry, thirsty, stranger, sick, naked, and in prison? Uh, when did we see you in this way? Is what both groups say. So this parable, if read to say, I will go out and do these things so that Jesus will know that I had done them, you're, you're, not, you're missing the point. Both of these groups were so connected to Jesus in their self-forgetfulness, or that goats were so connected to Jesus in their self-forgetfulness, they did this without going, I remembered you told a parable about this, and so I went out and made sure I was saved. It comes naturally out of this proclivity of being connected to Jesus. It's not something that we put on our to-do list. Well, today I've got to do one of these six things so that I can earn my salvation. Both groups say, when did we see you like that? Both groups are then told that whatever they did for the least of these, they did unto God uh, or didn't do in the second sense. And that's important to remember. Because this isn't an applicable way to sort of begin building up your salvation-earning pyramid, but as a way to say, how are we connected to the one who walked this earth and fed people and, and humanized people and was with them in their brokenness and in their ways? How are we connected to that one so that we mirror him naturally in our lives and so that when we get to that day, we're like self-oblivious sheep? I don't remember doing that. And I could tell you, when I took this parable seriously myself, when I became Bible literate, as I said, 
I was counting when I did these things because I didn't read this portion of the parable. When did I do those things is the proper response. Now, for some of this, this might mean building dislocatedness into our lives. We'll get to that application at the end, rather than just accepting that it happens. So the two stories. Does anybody know this story? Where, God, uh, where Love Is, There Is Also God by Leo Tolstoy. It's a wonderful short story that captures this one. We'll do Martin of Tours first. Martin of Tours is a saint in the East, I think, and the West. Uh, Martin of Tours was in an army. And he was traveling on a cold winter night, and he ran into somebody shivering who was poor, and he cut his army cloak in half and gave it to the poor man. Um, Martin and Tours, at this point, the legend goes, was discerning baptism into the church. And that night, Jesus came to him, and Jesus was wearing the other half of the cloak that he cut in half. This is a way in which we can see the tradition's memory of finding the transcendence in this care is that Jesus sort of appears to him as the one whom he had clothed. Martin, the, Martin of Tours, after that, leaves the military, goes off, finds another famous Christian, Hilary, Hilary of Poitiers, um, becomes a monk, and spends the rest of his life, he makes it up to bishop, serving the church. That he becomes this one who, through this act, has seen Christ in the world, and it radically changes his lives and being connected to him in this way. Interesting, well, we'll skip. There's a weird how we got the name chapel from this, but we don't have time. Where love is is where God is. This is a more modern telling, less mystical, in that this man, his wife dies, and his son um, has just recently died, and he is bitter at God. A Christian missionary visits him. This is Martin the cobbler. He makes shoes. Um, and a man comes to visit him, a missionary, and he says, you need to stop being so bitter. God decides when people live or die. God is in charge of the world, and so you need to sort of repent and believe the gospel. Martin takes this to heart, which I think is amazing in and of itself, and gets a copy of the New Testament. He begins reading it just on Christian holidays. Um, and in his reading of it, um, he begins to get comforted and receive joy. And he reads and reads, and then he reads the story of the woman who anoints Jesus at the Pharisee's house, and he thinks of himself not as the woman who anoints Jesus, but as the Pharisee. And he begins to think that evening as he falls to sleep, perhaps Jesus will visit me tomorrow, or even is almost instructed that Jesus will visit him tomorrow. So he goes to bed, wakes up in the morning. His friend is cold outside, shivering shovel snow. He invites him in for coffee, tells him about this dream, and it so moves that guy that he goes out in joy. Second, he sees, and I'm doing this from memory, so I'll put this story in the bulletin, or in the email this week. Second, he sees um, uh, a young woman, I think, who is freezing. I have notes, but I'm trying to move fast. A uh, young woman who is freezing invites her in, gives her some coffee, uh, gives her some clothes, and sort of sends her out on her way. Finally, he sees an old woman and a young boy in a fight, um, and he goes out and sort of resolves the fight between them, uh, gives them some warmth. Um, this, that, and the other, and he goes to bed, and he wonders, why didn't Jesus visit me today? And as he's falling asleep, each of the three people appear to him and say, it was me, it was me, it was me, that Jesus had visited him that day in each of these people in his faithfulness. Whatever you do unto the least of me, them, you have done unto me. 
And so this brings me to the final point of today's sermon, um, which is the quote on the back of the bulletin from Ivan Illich. Um, We have so institutionalized the nature of care for these people today that um, we don't live in that sphere anymore. We've made organization on top of organizations um, that care for them. Uh, And Illich in this example says, the bishops created special houses financed by the community that were charged with taking care of people without a home. Such care was no longer the free choice of the householder. It was the task of an institution. It was against that great, uh, it was against this idea that great church father, John Christendom railed. He called, he called the golden tongued because of his beautiful rhetoric. In one of his sermons, he warred against creating these house for foreigners by assigning the duty to behave in this way to an institution. He said Christians would lose the habit of reserving a bed and having a piece of bread ready in every home, and their households would cease to be Christian homes. The final point in charge for the sermon today is the interpretations are hard. This parable can go lots of different ways, but if you slow down and read it, and if you take the exclusion of this one, Christians are still called to care for the poor, by the way. You don't get out of that. Um, Is for us, and this is the hardest thing I think for us in the modern world is create space and to create time in our lives to be able to be interrupted by the people who might be in need around us. If you're always in a hurry to wherever you're going, you're not going to have the time to stop to care. If you never have space, whether it's a little extra food, a little bit of extra this, um, a little bit of extra money, if you don't create the, the mechanisms to be able to do this, we can't do it anymore. That we live in a world with institutions and a government that we can lobby to sort of do these things is, is what it is, probably good. But it doesn't exempt us from having Christian homes, from being Christians in the world. And so my final takeaway from this sermon is how do we create the little piece of bread earlier in this passage, the candle to give the person, a spare mattress or some clothes, or time to visit and imprison, to care for the sick that are around us, to be with these people. Speaking for myself, I'm often too busy, um, too stretched, lacking the space. And so what we need to do is pray, listening to this parable, into our hearts and lives, how we too can serve the least of these as if they are Christ among us. Let us pray. God, on your path to the cross, you give us this glimpse of the fullness of time in which you will come, your son, as king and divide the people. And in this great division and separation that happens, It won't be based on how much you earned or how high you climbed or how big your house is or how busy you were or what schools you went to or institutions you went to. But how you opened your life to those who were hungry, thirsty, naked, needing clothing, sick, and in prison. God, through your spirit, may you craft our hearts and lives so that we too have space and time 
to be guided by your holy interruptions to our lives. And in this, may we meet the concrete physical needs of people. Begin to know them. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.